Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering a special discount on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the news back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 21st. Today, the marvelous and mundane realities of life beyond Earth's bounds. And what a new audio recording reveals about Frida Kahlo. Having heard all these people talk about their experiences in space, does it make you want to go to space? Yes. (laughs) You're so ready. Chris Davenport covers the space industry for The Post. And for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, The Post interviewed 50 astronauts about their experiences in space. We talked to Michael Collins and Al Warden who flew during the Apollo era. We talked to astronauts who flew during shuttle. We talked to Russian cosmonauts. We talked to a lot of women. We really wanted a diverse group of people to create sort of a comprehensive portrait of what is it really like to go to space. And just to be clear, you did not do all these interviews personally yourself. No. Thankfully, we had a whole army of reporters and researchers tracking astronauts down. And I did one of them. Yours was like. great. <laughs> Thank you. Wait, which one did you do again? I did uh, Dorothy Metcalf Lindenberger. One of my favorites. Um, and can you hear me? Yes, I've got you loud and clear. Um, so... <laughs> Sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that all 50 astronauts were asked about was the experience of liftoff. You know, it's interesting because we got like a diversity of responses on that very question. Which partly reflects the changes in rocket design over the years. What was it like at liftoff? (laughs) That is like the biggest kick in the back I have ever felt. Like for the shuttle astronauts between 1981 and 2011, liftoff was pretty violent. Then when you actually go, all of a sudden everything is shaking. You're shaking. The vehicle's shaking. And my job, I was the flight engineer behind the commander and the pilot. And I am supposed to be scanning like all these gauges and looking at these little numbers on the screen. And in the simulator, you can do that. In the vehicle, I was like, oh my goodness, can I see that number? (laughs) Everything's vibrating. But then we talked to some of the Apollo astronauts on the Saturn V rocket, which is like the most powerful rocket ever. They were so high up, away from where the engines were, that Al Warden said he didn't even realize. When we lifted off, we didn't even know it. The analogy that I use is like, Driving in a a car with an automatic transmission and stopping at a red light, when the light turns green, you don't hit the accelerator, you just take your foot off the brake. What happens? Well, you start to drift forward a little bit. The spacecraft is so heavy that at first it goes slowly. The liftoff of the Saturn V was more impressive for a spectator than it was riding it. The spectator gets all the noise and the dynamics of the flame and all of that you see. 
but inside is riding it you're just in a cockpit that on the windows are all covered over and and so you don't hear any noise but the vibration is intense and I just remembered hmm, is this thing really working right is it supposed to shake that hard did any of them say that it was scary like, the, that they were scared? You know, one thing that's funny, talking about all the astronauts, they said the opposite. Like, they weren't afraid, that they had been trained for this from the beginning. And that even the astronauts who had flown after Challenger or Columbia, you know, the two shuttle missions that blew up. I mean, astronauts in a lot of ways are like soldiers. I mean, they know what they're getting into. They know it's dangerous. There's two outcomes to what's happening next when the rocket lights. You're either going to space, and if you're not going, you're probably not coming back. So... That's just the way it is. You know, that's, that's the job we do. We're lucky to have the opportunity. And then what happens when you get to the outer atmosphere and when you start to experience that weightlessness? Right. So with shuttle, I think you're blasting off and those engines are firing for like eight and a half minutes. And then, you know, the stages separate and then you have, you know, you're out in space. The moment I saw Earth from space, which was very emotional for me, I was crying and, and laughing at the same time. Anush Ansari is the first woman to go as sort of a civilian astronaut who paid her way to go. There are a few of these. I had a teardrop that had floated in front of me and it was surreal for me and seeing the beauty of our planet, which was overwhelming. It was, uh, I felt a warmth and energy and life sort of coming from this incredible planet in front of me, which was my home, and somehow I was outside of it and just very connected to it. So you hear a lot of people talk about that feeling of seeing the Earth from far away. Why is that such a powerful thing for people to experience? So when we talk to the astronauts and they talk about seeing the Earth from a distance, right, they call it the overview effect. I think that realization where you're up there and, you know, the astronauts are really busy, but they all try to schedule some time to do what they call Earth gazing and just look out the window. When we talk about the world being four and a half billion years old, it's unimaginable. But when you come around the world so often, you can start to see the age of it. Seeing, you know, the thin line of the atmosphere that contains all life, all seven billion people who are on Earth, and beyond it, seeing the vastness of space and how it just made, you know, all of the things that we're worried about here on Earth from something as trivial as traffic to something as big as, you know, conflicts between nations and war just seem, you know, irrelevant. But in addition to having the opportunity to see the beauty of planet Earth from far away, they also can see some of the terrible things that happen on Earth. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a stunning contrast. The impact of humanity is everywhere. You can see the fires burning all across the Amazon basin as people are clear-cutting the rainforest to make room for crops and cattle. You see the same thing happening all through the green areas of Africa. Richard Garriott, another one of these private citizens who went to space, talked about that. And so it becomes very easy to to see or feel that, wow, we, we can easily pollute. Humanity is well past the point of creating enough pollution to fill the entire air bubble, the thin atmosphere that sits around the Earth. They can see war. 
It was January of 2015. I went down the Russian segment with a couple of my Russian crewmates and one night over Ukraine, and you could see red flashes down on the planet in eastern Ukraine. We were there in space watching people die. I was the commander of the space station during 9-11. Frank Culbertson was the only American not on Earth during the September 11th attacks in 2001. And he was up that morning, and he had called down to Mission Control, and they told him, you know, what was happening, and that there had been an attack. And at that moment, he was kind of coming over North America. As we were flying over New England, I could look back and see New York. As I did, I saw this big gray cloud enveloping the southern half of the city. And what I was seeing, I determined later, was the second tower coming down. But I just assumed tens of thousands of people were dying. What was it like for him to be so far removed from his home and from Earth when this was happening. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone on that day sort of felt powerless, but imagine if you're the only American who's not on the surface of the Earth. Yeah, it was a tough place to be. You know, all my friends and family were on the ground, and I had no idea whether they were in danger for a few days. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, shipmates, One of his classmates and a good friend of his from the Naval Academy was a pilot on one of the planes that crashed. I would like to remember our classmate Chick Burlingame, the captain of American Airlines flight that, of course, crashed into the Pentagon. And so for his memorial service, Frank played taps. He had actually brought his trumpet to play on the International Space Station. So I'd like to ask all of you to rise for a moment of silence as we play something of International Space Station Alpha. seems like music was a big part of people's space experience. I mean, particularly those on the station who had been there for a while. There is an astronaut band called uh, Max Q, that moment where there are the most aerodynamic pressures on the rocket. But they even had sort of like a jam session. Are they uh, all space-themed? Well, well, it's funny because Chris Hadfield, a Canadian astronaut, did a cover of David Bowie's song, Space Oddity. This is ground control to me. You know, he's floating around the space station. He has a guitar and he's playing. I'm curious about what the other daily routines of space that you wanted to hear about. Well, I wanted to hear... What was surprising for them? I mean, you go through all this training, but then you get up there and, like, what is it that you weren't expecting? Washington Post, this is Mission Control Houston. Please call station for a voice check. 
station. This is Chris Davenport with the Washington Post. How do you hear me? Hello, Chris. Station has you loud and clear. Welcome aboard. Thanks so much for taking the, the time, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, so we interviewed uh, two astronauts, Nick Haig and Christina Cook, while they were on the space station. One of the things we heard was how much in space you use your toes, which is kind your of toes? Weird. Your toes. We're constantly uh, hooking our, our toes underneath handrails here to hold us down, just like we are right now. I've got my, my feet underneath a handrail. And they get these calluses on the tops of their feet, but, but because <laughs> they're not using the bottom of their feet because they aren't standing on anything really. Slowly, the, the, the dead skin off the bottom of your feet uh, goes away and they become fairly smooth. Then all of a sudden, the bottom of their feet are really get soft. Like once it's <laughs> soft like a baby's bottom. What is it like for astronauts when they start heading back to Earth? You know, this is the nice thing about when you do interviews with 50 astronauts. You get all kinds of different perspectives. You know, people have been up there for a long time, I think, about ready to come home. But other ones just felt really sad because you know, some of them know this is the only chance they're going to get. You feel really sad as the final day comes near. And I, you know, try to find a rationale to stay longer. And when the day comes, uh, you say goodbye to your your friends on orbit and get yourself uh, seated on the capsule. And then uh, up until the moment that uh, the capsule touches down on the ground, all I feel is now we are back to reality. And uh, sometimes reality bites. What happens when they get back to Earth? There's a bit of a transition coming back to Earth as there is when you first go to space, you know, because you've been living in a weightless environment for so long that at first your arms feel heavy. And, you know, you don't have the convenience of being weightless. So, you know, in space, you can float things. If you want to put a pen down, you wouldn't necessarily just put it on the table. You just let go of it gently and it'll float next to you. Well, on Earth, if you do that, it's going to crash. So there are a lot of, you know, examples of people coming back to Earth. The next morning they wake up, they have a cup of coffee, they float their coffee mug and crack. <laughs> it splashes all over the place. Mike Massimino, a NASA astronaut, told us he was unloading uh, home in Houston. He was unloading the groceries. It was probably like the third day back and I was taking groceries out of the minivan and wasn't sure where to put uh, one. You know, I wasn't sure I had all these bags, right? You know, where am I going to put all of them? Am I going to get them out of the car and into the house? And I thought, oh, I know what I do. I'll just float this one here. <laughs> How does the experience of being in space change people? I think from, you know, what we glean from the astronauts is that going to space can have a really profound effect. I mean, it just sort of changes your perspective of the world. And to see we're on this one spaceship, spaceship Earth, in, you know, the dark vastness of space, sort of together. And I think that has a profound effect on people. And, you know, one of the interesting things going forward when we talk about the commercialization of space and that there's this movement to get more people, everyday citizens, into space, because today there have only been about 570 people who have ever been to space, depending on what your definition of where space begins is. But if, you know, there are more people who go up and have that view, you know, you start to think 
5, 10, 20 years from now, instead of it being 570 people who have been to space, but it's several thousand people or tens of thousands. And it gets to the point where you know someone or you know someone who knows someone who's been to space and is talking about that, that that could have a profound effect, not just on them, but on society as a whole. Chris Davenport is a reporter for The Post. To read excerpts from the interviews with all 50 astronauts and to see photos of their time in space, go to postreports.com. And now, one more thing from the post-art critic Sebastian Smee about a new recording of Frida Kahlo that was recently discovered in the archives of Mexico's National Sound Library. I just love Frida Kahlo. There obviously is this kind of cult around her. People just get so excited by the whole idea of Frida Kahlo, and she's come to represent so many things to so many different people. But I guess because I'm an art critic, I like to focus on the paintings. You know, I tell myself that what really matters about Frida are her paintings. But then I realize, you know, it's not as simple as that. She is famous for her self-portraits. They're the most powerful works that she made. And they, I guess when you look at them, you realize they're involved in a kind of dance of of self-revelation and at the same time concealment. You know, she's in disguise in these different self-portraits. So there's a really kind of powerful, almost paradoxical dynamic in those self-portraits. There's a hunger in her both to be known and to sort of remain mysterious. And for me, that's what makes some powerful works of art. But it's also what feeds into this this whole sort of cult of Frida Kahlo, the Frida mania that you see spreading around the, the world, especially in the last few years. It's interesting to me that the two really big exhibitions this year on Frida Kahlo, one in Brooklyn and one in Boston at the Museum of Fine Arts, have had a few of her paintings, but they've mostly revolved around her costumes and letters and hundreds of photographs of her and the kind of cultural and social milieu that she came out of. So the focus is really on the cult around Frida rather than on her art. And that makes me a little uneasy, but I get it. You know, I think that she has become a kind of patron saint. But just because she is a kind of patron saint, I think there's this thirst for, for relics of Frida. And we've found a new one with this incredible recording of her voice. Con su cabeza asiática, sobre la que nace un pelo oscuro, tan delgado y fino que parece flotar en el aire, es un niño grandote. There's no other known recording of her voice anywhere. So it's really startling to, to suddenly hear the sound of Frida Kahlo, assuming it really is her, we're not 100% sure. It's a recording of her reading aloud something that she'd written about her husband, Diego Rivera. It just feels like we're that much closer to her when we listen to it. It's a funny thing. There is this sort of frisson of intimacy that you feel just to finally hear what she sounded like. What's really poignant about the recording is that she's talking about not herself, but about Diego. And of course, that's a reminder that although we all adore Frida Kahlo now, and in so many ways, she's much more famous than Diego Rivera, uh, globally at least. The fact is that she lived her entire life in Diego Rivera's shadow. He was the celebrity 
during their lifetime. He was the great artist, the communist hero. She was essentially just his wife. Viéndole desnudo, se piensa inmediatamente en un niño rana, parado sobre las patas de atrás. The other thing we forget, I think, when we turn her into a kind of icon, a sort of, we abstract her into a, a sort of saint or icon, is that she lived most of her life in excruciating pain as well. And it's not that you can necessarily hear that in her voice, but it's just something to think about when we hear this more intimate version of her speaking. Y con una conmovedora ternura culmina este relato diciendo... Su forma es la de un monstruo entrañable al cual la abuela, antigua ocultadora, la materia necesaria y eterna, La mujer entre todas ellas, yo. It's great hearing Frida's voice, but I guess because I'm an art critic and I love art, I still like to bring her back to the paintings. We've got to remember, she was an artist and a great artist. She wasn't a saint. The recording's really just another relic. It was gathering dust in a box before it was recently uncovered, and it'll probably gather dust again. The paintings won't. For me, you know, they remain as fresh and intense and, and, and full of the beauties and the mysteries and the paradoxes of, of, of self-revelation and self-expression as they were when Frida Kahlo made them. Sebastian Smee is an art critic for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to know how to support the work that we do here at Post Reports, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music for the show. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post. <laughs>